Charles here. Welcome to the 71st episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This podcast episode was recorded on the sacred lands of the indigenous people of the Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, and Miami. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Anna Zemont as a part of the big rhetorical podcast, Emerging Scholar Series. I was seeing what I saw has been really, really interesting. And, you know, in terms of being interested in abolition, that's absolutely something that I'm thinking about as sort of the prison-like aspects of, of education and the sort of carceral ways that we kind of t- just sort of assume that this is what education should look like and the way that it gets worse, particularly in kind of these lower funded, predominantly black and brown schools and the ways that ultimately going to be black and brown, low income, disabled students who are who are really paying for it. And and then also kind of looking at the, the corporateness of that organization, like why was Walmart a big donor for this nonprofit, quote unquote, what organizations are backing different places that we teach. And that's something that I ended up really exploring in my article. You'll hear more from Anna in a bit. But first, I want to share with you some incredible news. We are increasing the financial prize that comes with the 2021 Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award to $500. That's an increase from $100 to $500. We are able to increase the size of this award because the 2021 Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award is now co-sponsored by The Professor Is In. We here at the Big Rhetorical Podcast are so, so grateful for the generosity of the team over at The Professor Is In, and we are excited to collaborate with them on this project as well as other projects later this year. And we are grateful for your generosity too, dear listeners. Get your nominations in for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award ASAP. The original due date for applications was May 15th, but we are going to push that back an extension until May 31st to allow for more submissions and for more time to raise funds. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award highlights graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The TBR Podcast Graduate Student Award comes with the financial prize of $500. To be eligible for this award, nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, composition, communications, or a related field during the 2020 2021 academic year. Exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, composition, and communications classroom. Demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. Contribute to the development of the field through service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. And advance critical conversations in the disciplines through the publication of scholarship, refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. To nominate someone for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, and a 200-word bio and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee meet the above criteria. Use the subject line, Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 31st, 2021. And self-nominations are welcome. For more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out to us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com 
or visit the Big Rhetorical Podcast website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. On today's episode, I talk with Anna Zemont as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars series, the series which inspired our award. The Emerging Scholars series is specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. So far this season, we have heard from scholars from all over, including from Christian Brothers University, Iowa State University, the University of Colorado, Florida International University, the University of Delaware, Barry College, Syracuse University, and Northeastern University. And now we talk to Anna Zemont from the City University of New York Graduate Center. Anna Zemont is a PhD candidate in English at the City University of New York Graduate Center, concentrating in composition, rhetoric, and American studies. She's currently a dissertation fellow at the Gattel Urban Studies Collective, a fellow with CUNY's New Media Lab, and a consultant at Baruch College's Writing Center. Across CUNY, she's taught composition courses and served as a Writing Across the Curriculum fellow. Anna's research draws on queer feminist, decolonial, and abolitionist frameworks to interrogate the politics and movement of literacy across educational institutions and urban geographies. Other interests include multimodal pedagogies and rhetorics, critical university studies, archival methodologies, and science and technology studies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anna Zima. Who are you? What's your name? What's your, your institution, your role, and what do you do there? Um, yeah, so my name is Anna Zemont. My pronouns are she, her. I... Um, am a PhD candidate at the City University of New York, or CUNY for short, um, Graduate Center. Um, and CUNY is um, the largest, pub- largest urban public university system in the country. Okay. Um, so I, it has a standalone campus that is where you know grad students go. Um, that's called the Grad Center, but then it also has like affiliated campuses, like it has like over ten. Um, and those include community colleges and um, sort of four-year colleges. So during my time at CUNY, I've worked and like taught at a bunch of different places, as is pretty typical for a CUNY student kind of running around the city and doing this and that. Um, so yeah, right now, besides working on my dissertation, I am a... Um, Gattel Fellow in Urban Studies at um, the Gattel Center, um, which is uh, sort of, yeah, an urban studies institute at the at the Grad Center. Um, it's interdisciplinary. And then I am also a writing consultant at Baruch's Writing Center. Um, and I've been doing that for a while and definitely, you know, love writing center work. Um, I'm not teaching this semester, which is a little right. unusual, but um, I am doing the writing center work. So what does the Gattel Fellowship allow you to do? What, what, how does that come into your overall project? Well, I mean, it's been so helpful. Um, the main thing that it did is that it gave me time to write. And um, obviously, I applied before COVID and everything happened. But just like, I mean, everybody is experiencing, you know, 
it's just such a struggle this year to get anything done. And so, so having, um, and also we're not guaranteed funding for more than five years at the grad center. So that, and um, so this was like a way to get a sixth year of funding basically. Um, and normally the Gattel center puts on like various events and things like that. That definitely was taken down a notch. But um, one thing that I am helping out with is um, with the director of the Gattel Center. Her name is Selena Sue. She's um, an education and um, uh, urban planning and um, social movement sort of scholar. Um, and with the two other fellows who are social science um, people, we're going to do um, sort of some workshops on participatory methods um, and sort of activist methods. Um, and I've been sort of helping be like, I'm the humanities person and I don't know what any of these words mean. Um, here's how we can make this more accessible to humanities students. Um, and so um, just because that's something that I've been really interested in to like learning more about these sort of quote unquote social science methodologies that aren't necessarily like required classes in English programs or comp programs, but actually would be super useful to know about. So I'm excited that we're doing that. Um, uh, yeah. That sounds super cool. That sounds super cool. Are so you from New York? Are you from New York? I am not. Okay. Uh, um, I am actually in California right now. I uh, um, At my parents' house, I came back um, for the break and to avoid the cold just because COVID times are so weird and everybody's kind of in different places. So I'll be back, you know, at, in this month, um, going back to New York. But yeah, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area um, in Berkeley. And um, so I did have a lot of relatives from New York and I knew of CUNY because I had relatives who had gone there. Um, like I'm like, Eastern European Jewish and so I feel like you know it's kind of a typical thing for like to go through Ellis Island and then you know I had family living in New York in like you know early 1900s or whatever and I still do have family in New York um and you know at that point there were a lot of schools that were having caps on the number of Jewish students and like uh at that point also CUNY was really an amazing place for quote-unquote ethnic whites um, such as, you know, Irish people and Jewish people, um, that changed. Um, but yeah, so I knew of it, um, because of that. And also I had, I had a lot of friends and community in New York, um, who I met in college and, um, it's just, it was a place that I wanted to live. Um, and I, yeah, like I said, I knew of CUNY and I also knew about it because of the open admissions movement and, because of these opportunities to really start teaching right away um, and to work with sort of basically about as heterogeneous of a student population as you really could. Um, and that was really exciting to me. So yeah, I've lived in New York, although I'm not there right now for now like five and a half years. Um, so let's talk about how you got to Oberlin where you were both an English major and a biology major, right? Yeah. How did that happen? How did you get to Oberlin? How did you enjoy your time there? Well, yeah, because a lot of people, you know, who I went to high school with and people I met were like, why would you move to Ohio if you <laughs> are, you know, if you're living in California? The funny thing so, that's a fair question. <laughs> I know, and, and it's very fair. Uh, Ohio's cool. Northeast Ohio, Cleveland, yeah. very cool place really interesting stuff happening, you know, has a whole history of punk, etc. But uh, I ended up, I heard about Oberlin, like, it's kind of one of these things where it's just sort of random. I had a fan, I have a family friend who went there. And also a girl from my high school had gone. And they were both sort of somewhat artistic. And I thought they were very cool. One worked, you know, did these op-eds with the school newspaper. And I was like, oh, she's awesome. And um, they had both gone to Oberlin and were sort of interested, you know, kind of, um, yeah, really interested in the arts. One is queer and sort of I was like, okay, you know, I'd grown up in Berkeley, which is a really progressive place. Um, and but also I, I thought that this seemed like a, a 
like I visited it and was sort of like, oh, I think these are kind of my people. And I, yeah, I had a really good experience there mostly. I mean, there's definitely a lot of problems with Oberlin, which I could certainly talk about, but um, I had a really, really positive learning experience there. I mean, to answer your question about um, double majoring, when I, I always thought I was a science person. Um, I found writing to be extremely difficult. I still do. Um, I had terrible, terrible writer's block um, for a bunch of different reasons. I had, I, I, for some reason, got it in my head that I wanted to be a marine biologist, which is cool. Like, I do really, you know, seals, otters, et cetera. Very cute. I still love otters. Um, and I pursued that, actually. You know, I did, like, a summer program in it for nerds, et cetera. That was, you know, it was it, some of it, like, the sort of theoretical and kind of interactive components of biology are really cool to me. Um, yeah. I was, the classes that I was the most interested in as a major were in evolution. And um, I thought evolution was really, really interesting because there is so much about it that is up in the air. And that was really exciting to me because, you know, I had this, the, the professor of that class, um, Keith Tarvin, who was my advisor in the sciences, he you know, he would ask us sort of to think about different models that people had theorized and actually kind of, que you know, question which ones sort of make the most sense. And it was sort of this very intellectually really interesting thing. Um, but I was sort of becoming disillusioned as a student with the sciences, first because I uh, was you know, we had to take all these kind of quote unquote weed out classes. Like you have to take intro chemistry and bio, intro bio. And those classes are like massive. And they're, you know, they kind of foster this sort of competitive atmosphere because they're required for the major. And um, also, you know, you're with students who are, you know, really, really pursuing it, you know, hardcore going to medical school, like all that. So, um and it's, yeah, it was just all test taking. And it, I mean, yeah, it was not a particularly Frarian approach to teaching. Um, and then I also um, worked in um, a lab for, I think, a semester when I was a college student. And I was really, really bad at it because <laughs> it was like you have to do pipetting and my attention to detail in that capacity was not very good. Um, and I also found it boring. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that. You noted that the, the teaching in those big, you know, big classes for freshmen, you know, probably like 50, 100 folks, yeah. like so, kind of connects to some of your scholarly interests. I say some like literacy studies, critical race, abolitionist and decolonial approaches to education and yeah. writing pedagogy in the university and beyond. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's more. We're going to get to that. Yeah, but no, I, no, I was like, that I sounds right. Oh, yeah, I, I guess I wrote that. But. You wrote that. <laughs> uh, but let's start there. Okay. How did you get invested in that type of work? Yeah, so that also happened when I was a college student. As I was sort of becoming disillusioned with the sciences. Well, first of all, I ended up in an English class as my freshman seminar. I was just assigned to it. And um, I ended up really liking it. And I was like, oh, this isn't the kind of rote uh, test oriented class that I thought English was. And so that was that was really exciting. And I, I really loved discussions. I, I loved the kind of interactive component of those classes. And um, then I as a junior, I decided to become a um a writing tutor and Oberlin has a small comp rep department and they run the writing center. I was, I knew I was interested in teaching. Um, so I ended up becoming a writing associate, not because I thought I was a great writer, but because I wanted to teach and this was an opportunity to do that. And so, but what ended up happening is I got really, really fascinated with writing pedagogy and it really started making me reflect on all of my education and just, you know, some of the classes that I had that were great and some of the teachers and then many, many that were really alienating um, and just, yeah, not, not seem to not really be thought out um, and just kind of replicating in terms of who they were giving A's to. It's like just replicating, you know, racial and class hierarchies. They're just so getting that chance to really reflect um, 
and think about, you know, writing in that kind of way um, was what really, you know, it really clicked for me. And um, I loved working with students, like with my peers at the writing center. Um, I just, there was something about it that I just was like, oh, this is something that I want to do. And I kind of realized that as a college student. Um, after I went to college, I worked in like secondary education, which is something I'm still really interested in, but always kind of had this thought in the back of my mind, like what if I could get, go get a PhD in comp ed and um, study these things that I knew that I was really, really, really excited about. Um, What's your interest in secondary education and how does that play into like maybe your career aspirations or your research aspirations? Totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was my first teaching experiences um, were I, I spent a lot of time working with middle schoolers and high schoolers. Um, like I like I said, um, my grandma was a biology teacher and she's yeah, was one of my heroes. And um, she's absolutely someone I think about when I think about like the kind of teacher, the kind of person I wanted to be. And I knew that that was something she did. And so part of me was like, oh, this is really cool. I'll follow in her footsteps in this way. Um, and I really liked working with, with young people. I, I really do. Um, and I was sort of interested though, in working with like having, first of all, the big reason that I ended up shifting in part was both that I kind of wanted to talk about these sort of theoretical ideas and different kinds of things I was noticing. Um, you know, I did a teaching fellowship not too dissimilar from Teach for America. And it was just so neoliberal. And the I was just so underprepared for it. And the students were just being so misserved. And In what ways? Well, you know, um, they were bringing in people. I had more teaching experience going in than most people. But they were basically bringing in a bunch of, you know, largely, well, my campus was not actually mostly white, but a lot of the campuses were predominantly white Um middle class, uh, upper middle class people to work in these really low income, predominantly black and brown communities with extremely defunded schools. And so um, just, yeah, throwing people in to schools that were really needed more support. And um, I thought it was like kind of, you know, really unethical and they also, I was working at a charter school. I ended up being placed at the only charter school that that organization worked with, which I was like not pleased about um, because I I had read even then about privatization and the different kinds of hyper-disciplinary um, approaches that these schools have. And um, it wasn't as kind of extreme as some charter schools, like KIPP is really famous for these really, really extreme kind of attendance policies, but you could still absolutely see this sort of carcerality, this um, being surveyed. I felt surveilled, students felt surveilled, I think by me. And um, then, you know, pursuing my degree more and thinking more about this sort of, um, not the, you know, school to prison pipeline, but the sort of school to prison continuum and starting uh -huh. to understand more about why I was seeing what I saw has been really, really interesting. And, um, you know, in terms of being interested in abolition, that's absolutely something that I'm thinking about as sort of the prison like aspects of, of education um, and the sort of carceral ways that we kind of t just sort of assume that this is what education should look like and the way that it gets worse, particularly in um, kind of these lower funded, predominantly black and brown schools um, and the ways that, um, you know, it's ultimately going to be black and brown, low income, disabled students who are who are really paying for it. Um, mm. So that was something that I and, and then also kind of looking at the, the corporate um, the corporateness of that organization. That's something that really stayed with me. Um, like, why was Walmart a big donor for this um, nonprofit, quote unquote? Like, that was really confounding to me. Um, and that absolutely, like, sort of getting interested in who is sponsored, like the idea of literacy sponsorship, but thinking about it in a very material way, like what 
organizations are backing different places that we teach. And that's something that I ended up really exploring in my article that is going to come out imminently for Community Literacy Journal, which is about the nonprofit industrial complex. So, um, yeah. What's, what's the nonprofit industrial complex? Walk us through that a little sure, bit. Sure. What's your article? What is your article looking at? What can people expect that want to dive in coming up later on? Um. Okay. So my article. Okay. So here's. Okay. The nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, it's a term that was really, I think, coined by activists, including people in this group called Insight. Um, and it's basically, you know this idea that there's sort of this network of private private companies that are really um, influencing nonprofits, which is kind of ironic because they call themselves nonprofits, but then they get supported monetarily by for-profit companies. And um, in many ways, you can see those companies having sway over what these nonprofits do and, um, or just really what, you know, what they end up kind of looking like. Um, I mean, the other thing would be about the nonprofit industrial complex is that not only do companies kind of shift the priorities or even the sort of ideological outlook or really, you know, yeah, like sort of the ideology of a particular nonprofit, but also, uh, the other thing is that the um, by donating or being, you know, being philanthropists like a company like Google, which is one that I really look at in this project, um, ends up really looking good and kind of looks like this benevolent kind of hero who are really helping education or helping whatever kind of cause, which is totally, you know, covering up the fact that these massive companies are really participating in you know, this neoliberal racial capitalist um, dispossession, <laughs> like, um, and... Sounds like a great way for them to get more data, too, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so, um, exactly, yes. So that's, my article is looking at one literacy nonprofit um, that was founded in the Bay Area right when kind of tech-related gentrification was really starting. So one thing that was interesting to me was, like, well, why is it that all these tutors and the founder are gentrifiers and they're not talking about this? Like, what does that mean in community literacy if we're gentrifying a community? Um, and so I got interested in thinking a little bit about the history of San Francisco. Um, and I got interested also um, sort of in contextualizing the founding of this organization in the sort of material conditions of the city in that moment um and also in the history of kind of migration and settler colonialism um in the city and with that context i sort of look at the founder's ted talk very critically and think about the way that he slash the mostly the organization i guess is perpetuating this sort of white saviorism and this sort of possessive investment in the education of people that they never really ask what they wanted. Um, and uh, so not really allowing much agency to the people who already lived in the city. Um, and so what I end up thinking about is, um, and then also at the same time, looking at how as, the, as this organization has grown, it's been more and more supported by tech companies, like financially. And the sort of irony that this is supposed to be a community organization when meanwhile tech is basically pushing out um, so much of San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco is unaffordable to basically anyone at this point. Um, and so what I end up talking about in the end is I call it, um, my advisor Carmen Kennard helped me coin this, so I have to credit her, uh, divestment as an educational praxis. So what would it look like to really say like, no, I'm not taking, you know, I'm not going to work for a company. I'm not going to work for an organization that takes money from these things to, to, to say no to these kinds of um, uh, financial investments. And, and then also kind of refuse these white colonial um, paradigms for how we think about what, 
you know, what it means to do community literacy. Um, and so in the end, I sort of suggest that one place to look is, is really what organizers are doing. Um, so, you know, in San Francisco, there's this whole, you know, as the city's been gentrifying, there's, there have been these amazing grassroots movements that are happening, you know, protesting um, gentrification, whether that's through kind of murals that, you know, parody Google or through kind of um, on the ground tactical um, protests that literally block um, people trying to get to their tech jobs. Um, and so looking there, um, I think, is is one place that was that I sort of think about as mm. sort of a model. And also in, in theorizing that project, um, I was really using a lot of scholarship. I, I just think it's important to say in indigenous studies and also in uh, um, critical geography and also black and women of color feminist uh, feminist ideas. So a lot of, you know, what I was getting at also was coming from different spaces besides comparate. And so I think that that was helpful for me in yeah. kind of thinking through these things. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. Right, let's talk about your dissertation um, titled the, the Act of the Paper literacy, neoliberalism, and student protest in 1990s New York City. It sounds like a fascinating project. Who's on your dissertation committee, and why did you choose those people? So my committee is uh, Carmen Kennard, who taught at CUNY for a while. She moved to Texas. Uh, she is at Texas Christian University now. Um and then um, my other committee members are Amy Wan, who's um, a professor at Queens College um, in CUNY and also at the Grad Center, um, and then um, in English. And then um, Vonnie Kanan, who is a um, an assistant professor at Lehman College at CUNY, um, and then also Michelle Fine, who is an education uh, slash critical psychology professor. So um, I ended up kind of coming to that committee. I mean, Amy and Carmen were the first two, like were two of the first people that I, that I started taking classes with at the grad center. And I met them both right away. Like I took a class with Amy my first semester and with Carmen my second semester. And they just like both fundamentally shifted um, my academic interests, the way that I was thinking about my work. Um, they're, yeah, they're both like really, really amazing scholars who are also just really care about, you know, trying to make academia as kind of non-toxic as possible and really trying to live their values in a real way. And um, that was really important to me to have someone, to have people who I knew were like not going to sort of perpetuate Things like um, this idea that, you know, in academia, we have to jump through hoops because it's what former, you know, what older professors had to do, even if those hoops are, you know, profoundly ableist and white supremacist or whatever. And so I knew that they were going to be really, um, you know, like, for example, 
during COVID, um, you know, I, I struggle with like mental health issues. And so having professors who I knew would understand when, you know, life gets in the way and things like that, rather than being like, well, you got to work through it, you have to get it done. But having professors who would really understand that was like so important to me. And both Amy and Carmen have been that way. Um, and yeah, so Carmen um, was someone that I also taught with at John Jay. And so um, I was lucky that I was able to just like drop into her office a lot and just try to absorb her wisdom. Um, she is, yeah, one of the most kind of sharp people I've met and, um, but is also, you know, really interested in community building and um, working with, you know, she thinks about her, like her students, like I felt like I was someone that she treated like a colleague. And I know that she feels that way about her, her undergrads too. Like anybody is someone who has a great, who can have a great idea and kind of, um, and she also was just sort of like unabashedly critical and also like unabashedly placing black feminism um, at the center of everything that she was doing. And I found that to be really, really exciting. I mean, she introduced me to all this kind of black feminist scholarship. Um, and yeah, so she's been super, super influential. Um, yeah, I love, I love her. She's great. And um, yeah, Amy's, Amy's also been like tremendously helpful. Um, she's gotten me, you know, she's helped me go to conferences. She's um, also someone who does just kind of one thing that really inspires me about Amy is I think that she's someone whose work is really seems like it's shifting and that and kind of she's just is trying a bunch of different new things. And like it seems to me that she sort of values this idea of kind of always growing as a pedagogue and as an intellectual and um, rather than sort of any kind of like complacency or sort of doing the same thing over and over. Um, and yeah, and her research is also really amazing. Um, uh, I took a class with her on literacy and transnationalism, and that was super, super influential. Um, and then Vani is someone that I met more recently um, through sort of composition rhetoric community at, at CUNY. And um, she's really doing the kind of work that I could sort of see myself doing in terms of like there's sources that she was pulling on and her commitment to organizing and um, to sort of locating her theoretical base in women of color feminisms and queer feminisms. And um, yeah, I, I thought she was also, yeah, she's she's been so great and I'm so glad that I, I met her. And then Michelle is someone who I brought on um, because I just felt like it was helpful to have kind of a more holistic perspective I, I really, it's important to me to be, like I sort of said, like, I really want my work to be interdisciplinary, just not just because that's just cool, which I do, you know, I've always thought it's cool to learn about different things. I mean, as a bio English major, but also I just think it makes your work better. And so having that kind of perspective of somebody who's in the social sciences, quote unquote, has been really, really has been like was something that I was like looking for. So yeah. so yeah, so in your dissertation, you're you're looking at 1990s New York City. Let's start yeah. with the time first. So why the 1990s, and then why New York City? Okay, so um, I got interested in this project because um, while at CUNY, I I sort of learned about and kind of knew a little bit about this, but there's this whole kind of um, archive of scholarship in CompRet that uses CUNY as sort of site to think about it. Um, that has to do, I think, a lot with um, the, the fact that quote unquote basic writing has a lot of its roots at CUNY. So um, in 1969, um, black and Puerto Rican students occupied um, City College, one of the CUNY campuses, and demanded that uh, the school demographic look more like that of the city, and also demanded things like um, mandatory um, 
Spanish language classes for future teachers, um, you know, Africana studies classes, ethnic studies classes, um, different kinds of things. And so those d- demands, some of them basically ended up being met, um, which is a pretty amazing through this sort of militant action. And what that meant is that CUNY's campus transformed overnight and it became um, from 1970 to 1999, CUNY had an open admissions policy, which meant that, um, you know, students who now would be placed in community colleges were then able to go to CUNY where they could take uh, sort of these basic quote unquote classes so that they could then be quote unquote mainstreamed into regular classes. Um, So because of this, you know, because of that change um, and having these students who weren't quote unquote prepared for quote unquote college writing, uh, this this um, field of basic writing kind of emerged there um, with people like Mina Shaughnessy. Um, and so I got interested in the 90s because it's this period when open admissions ended. And so I was like, oh, well, a lot of the narrative that we tell in Compret has to do with the 70s and also sometimes is sort of this a little bit hero worshipy teachers are heroes kind of vibe especially about Mina Shaughnessy who has subsequently you know been critiqued by a bunch of people including Carmen and um Minjun Liu um and so I I was sort of like why aren't people talking about this period more of um this sort of, you know, and so then I, I started researching the 90s more and I got really interested also in thinking about it at this, this moment of really intense neoliberal policy in the city at large. So not, there was this sort of massive defunding that ended up triggering the reversal of open admissions because uh, funding things like quote unquote basic writing classes or programs like SEEK um, or other kinds of support systems that were helping students who wouldn't have been at those schools. Um, So, you know, most of them are sort of a lot of students who, you know, yeah, didn't have the kind of resources that a lot of other students had. Oh my God, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. One of the things, one of the connections I've made just from talking to you here for a moment is like, you know, focusing on the 1990s, there's my dog. Oh, go ahead. Go. I was just going to say, yeah, so looking at, you know, and that was sort of what I knew about the 90s was that it was this moment of kind of defunding uh, of CUNY. But then I was like, what else was happening there? Um, And so that's when I sort of started getting interested in looking at student archives from that moment. Um, And um, I was also in a class on the culture wars, which a lot of which kind of happened in the 90s. And I actually, it was a really exciting, you know, it was a cool class. Like it, it, it totally, it really, that's where I came up with this project. At the same time, I found myself frustrated that the class was really understanding the culture wars from the perspective of academics and particularly white academics. Um, and um, I really wanted to know what students were thinking in this moment when there were all these kinds of debates that were happening about which schools should be funded? What what should schools teach? What should schools look like? Um, you know, um, and so, yeah, I started looking a little bit um, first at this thing, the CUNY Digital History Archive, which is basically an online archive of a bunch of um, student publications, as well as kind of newspapers and news clippings um, from the So history. this is the archival, I'm sorry to cut you off, but this is the archival re- research that you did for your dissertation? No. So this is how I sort of found out about it is that there was okay. already, I mean, some of it is, it happened that there was already this digitized collection of okay. some publications already. And so that's when I was like, oh, students totally were talking about these things because there were all these student articles where they have these kind of op-eds about, um, uh, you know, this, um, the CUNY Digital History Archive had um, a lot of these sort of radical student activist newspapers from this time period. And they were, directly talking about what was happening to them and weren't just kind of accepting it like, oh no, Guinea's getting defunded. 
oh, well, like nothing we can do, but we're actively kind of fighting it. And to me, that was interesting because I don't know that we always talk about student activism activism when it doesn't kind of work out the way that feels good to us as readers. Um, there were things that those students won, um, but also some of it is just thinking about in and of itself, the kind of writing and the coalition building that came out of that struggle um, as, you know, inherently worth thinking about and worth modeling our own kind of pedagogies and ideas about writing um, around. Uh, so then after that, I uh, started investigating more kinds of CUNY um, student authored archives and went to a bunch of different campuses um, in the CUNY system. I mean, the hard thing is CUNY doesn't have a centralized archive. So it was like I had to go around the city a lot. And then COVID happened. So unfortunately, I didn't get to see like every campus. So this will be like an ongoing thing. Hopefully, you know, this is a project that I want to stay with for a while. Um, but, you know, I did find some really, really cool um, uh, things and, you know, was was also put into touch with um, different writers. Because the cool thing about the 90s also is like uh, that people are like around who wrote this stuff. So I've met, you know, a few different writers from that time um and you know have asked them like is this okay <laughs> like what do you think of the way that I'm framing this um and the cool thing is that I think that you know you know being involved in student activism myself I think sometimes being recognized for some of that is is really nice and it's cool I mean I think they I think that they it's cool to them that someone is thinking about this stuff um because, yeah, I know they worked really hard on those on these publications and they're and I mean, it shows they're really brilliant um, in a lot of ways. Their theoretical framework for understanding the 90s surpasses most academics. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I learned from these publications a lot. It, they're really changing the way that I think about um, about universities, about intersectionality, um, about writing. Um, so, yeah, I, I try to put those those ideas, the students. Um, and what they were doing really at the center of my project, I hope. I'm really interested in learning more about some of the archival research you did for your dissertation project. Could you walk us through some of the things you actually did? And then if you'd like to tell us a little bit about what you found, you can. Or if you want to save that for later, feel free. Okay, sure. Yeah, so um, the I think I guess the first thing I did was, yeah, so I really looked through this website and kind of mined it for all it had. Um, I, I talked to people who'd done archival work at CUNY and also read um, different kinds of archival projects about CUNY, um, both in our field and kind of out of it, and tried to sort of wrap my head around what this could kind of look like. And then from there, I started contacting basically every campus library and was like, do you have any publications from the 90s? And I actually got a lot of people saying like, no, or that's not likely that you'll find anything. Um, just because I, number one, I think that CUNY is, you know, it's really underfunded and they have, they don't have the greatest archival resources. It's really unfortunate because there is this really amazing stuff coming out of it, but it's um, compared to the amount of archival material from the 90s, that was that I found at uh, Barnard and NYU and Columbia. Um, CUNY, the stuff held at CUNY itself was kind of, you know, there wasn't very much of it. Um, so like a lot of the work that I found, like there is um, one of the main organizations, one of the main activist coalitions that I look at um, is called SLAM. Um, Student Liberation Action Movement, and they were, um, yeah, a, a multiracial, multi-institutional um, student activist group that really t used kind of feminist and, um, you know, um, anti-racist principles in their organizing and their writing. But interestingly, the SLAM's materials are held at NYU in their archive. So I had to go to NYU, but it's, it's just kind of interesting that a lot of these CUNY materials aren't actually held at CUNY because CUNY isn't uh, really, you know, given the kind of funding that it should um, to support, um, you know, housing these kinds of things. Um, so 
Um, but the fact that, you know, there was just like small amounts of things at different campuses meant that I just was going to like a bunch of different places. Um, and then I ended up expanding um, and looking at um, kind of community um, uh, community archives. So New York has a few different archives that are not connected to institutions, but are sort of their own really community-centered entities. So one that I looked at is called ABC No Rio. Um, it is sort of a punk archive. It has a zine library. And uh, they also, I, I found some resources that were offered by students that I found at none of the libraries. Um, and that was really cool. Um, and it was really cool to just go in there and uh, talk to the people who work there and things like that. Um, and then also Interference Archive, um, which is another community-based archive in, in that one's in Brooklyn. And then the Lesbian History Archives um, is one that I did not have time to go to because COVID struck, but hope to go to. Um, and yeah, I, I was really like, you know, I found different kinds of resources, whether that was kind of like, yeah, like I was looking at zines, newspapers, um, and then kind of organizing pamphlets and posters and all different kinds of things like that and um, trying to integrate all of them, especially because some of them were written by d different kinds of concurrent coalitions. Some were based at different campuses and some kind of had different um, agendas. Um, and so kind of bringing those together and, and trying to, to think about also the ways that those publications were um, talking about the things that were going on in the city and, um, yeah. Why is this, why is this research, why is this work important? Um, well, you know, I think I really don't, I, I mean, how do I explain this? I really think that we need to be listening to students more and period. Like, I, I think that there's no one who describes who can I mean, the only person who can really accurately describe their own position is that person. You know what I mean? So it's like, if we're trying to understand what students are experiencing and what they think about writing, why is it that so many articles don't include what they have to say or really just think of them as sort of these non-agentic kind of cogs who just do whatever their brilliant teacher <laughs> says to them? Um, it, it feels like you know, that that's something that I was really wondering about, too, in my own work is like, how can I not replicate this sort of saviorist complex? And um, so I, I think that there is so much more out there that students have really put forward and young people and communities um, as sort of theoretical, you know, as theorizing themselves that it's just there's just so much out there that I think is kind of, we haven't really thought about it as theory per se, um, but it is. And um, so that was really, I mean, that's why the big reason that I think this research is important. I mean, I think like, like I was sort of saying earlier, I think looking at the 90s is important because I also, one thing that I really want to think about is, you know, educational institutions are never, you know, vacuums from from the quote-unquote real world there that's sort of a myth that I think you know we still kind of fall back on um and writing class classrooms too are they're never separate from real world issues and so I was really interested in thinking about the ways that mass incarceration and broken windows and just you know hyper policing and um the feminist movement and all these different kinds of things that are happening that were happening in the nineties and that sort of continue on to the present. Um, how were those things playing out at, um, on campus and how were students then kind of taking those ideas from campus, you know, and back into communities and sort of, um, yeah. So really thinking about the material conditions of, um, behind different kinds of classroom practices, um, and different kinds of educational policies and, and things like that. Um, yeah, and also, I mean, I just think that this, this writing is cool. It's interesting, and, like, I think, you know, people should check it out. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it was genuinely, it's genuinely just, like, really pleasurable 
to read this stuff and to like learn from it. Um, and, you know, I, I also got, yeah. So that's, that's kind of why. Okay, cool. What's next on your agenda today? Today? Today. What are you going to do uh, next? What are you doing this oh, afternoon? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So I'm talking with two of my great friends and collaborators. Um, Jesse Rice Evans, who I think was on a previous episode. She's awesome. She's the best. She's um, one of my dearest friends um, at CUNY. And then Andrea Stella, um, who Jesse and Andrea have known each other since they did their master's at City College in literacy and then both came to the um, to the grad center. Um, and we, the three of us, have pretty similar kinds of orientations around thinking about, you know, uh, you know, anti-racist, uh, you know, anti-white supremacist, anti-ableist pedagogies and um, trying to do things kind of differently than they've been done typically in the field. Um, and so the three of us um, proposed a sort of dialogue, um, multimodal piece for Kairos, um, and so we're going to brainstorm for that. And the idea for that was kind of thinking about some of the same ideas that I was talking about, but in the context of graduate education, um, the three of us all identify as queer and uh, disabled or, you know, um, neuroatypical. Um, so thinking about, you know, queer justice, disability justice, but also, you know, uh, the whiteness of the field um, in our in our context at CUNY, um, and particularly given COVID. So I'm very excited to brainstorm with them and also to catch up with them because, yeah, I miss everyone. It's it's hard. It's like you know you're not seeing people. It doesn't. It's 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 really tough right now. Um, so I'm excited to talk to them. Awesome. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for chatting with me and tell Jesse I said hey. I will. Yeah, she's awesome. the best. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anna Zemont. Don't forget to submit your nomination for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. I want to thank everyone who's been able to donate so far to the award. And we have nominations coming in every week. So make sure to get your nomination in by our new deadline of May 31st. And donate to the cause if you can. You can find our nonprofit information and GoFundMe information pinned to our Twitter page at The Big Red. Or you can search The Big Rhetorical Podcast on GoFundMe. Don't forget about the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival coming in August. The carnival already has doubled in size for our second year, and we're probably going to add a few more podcasts this summer. Remember, our podcast carnival theme is contending with misinformation in the classroom and the community, and we're going to announce our keynote speaker next week. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Music for this week's podcast is brought to you by Corey Anchors, co-founder and chief creative honcho at Hey Buddy Creative Collective. Check them out on Insta at HeyBuddyCC or HeyBuddyCC.com. Air Tone and Springtide.